0: Yitzhak Rabin nervously lit a cigarette and downed some bad coffee. He was poring over military intelligence reports from all corners of Israel. None of them were good. He inhaled deeply, finished that cigarette, and used the lit end to start another one. Aides swirled around him, bringing him more news. As the chief of staff of the Israel Defense Forces, the highest-ranking officer, Yitzhak Rabin was in charge of the Jewish state's defense against what the Arabs were promising was the final war of annihilation. Egyptian tanks swarmed into the Sinai desert, heading for Israel. Syria's air force was fueling up in the north, ready to go to battle. Jordan, Iraq, and Lebanon all were mobilizing. The pressure was enormous. Rabin lit yet another cigarette, chased down with the last remnants of more bad coffee. An aide put another mug in front of him, another cigarette. By one count, it was his 70th that day. Like any big war, there wasn't just one cause that led in a straight line to the War of 1967, which we call the Six-Day War. Lots of things were going on simultaneously. In Israel, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, even the Soviet Union and the United States. I won't cover all of it, but as usual, the broad narrative that we ought to know. What Israel knew as spring turned to summer in 1967 was that a major war was imminent, the Arab states were promising the ultimate reckoning with the great humiliation of 1948 that saw the hated Zionist entity come into existence, and this time they would have the Jews surrounded. Israel's leadership was under immense pressure, none more so, perhaps, than Yitzhak Rabin, the warrior god who had distinguished himself in battle time and time again. At the age of forty-five, he was in command of the entire army. The task was huge, the resources spread thin, the threat as real as it gets, but also on an unclear timeline. Rabin was utterly on edge. Cigarette after cigarette, night after night, bad coffee after bad coffee, and then, as he chained smoke through another pack, he collapsed. On the razor-thin edge of a major war, Yitzhak Rabin was having a nervous breakdown. This is the second to last episode of season four here at Jew I Don't Know. I'm your host, Jason Harris. Let's get into it. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Recently released classified transcripts from the months leading up to the Six-Day War reveal that Israel's top leaders didn't quite see it coming. I mean, yes, they knew the situation was getting more perilous as the winter of 67 turned into the spring and then the summer. But the war itself was the culmination of a wide array of events, rhetoric, politics, confusion, diplomatic failures, superpower meddling, and a host of other sources that were really hard to put together in a moment. And I'll admit, I've been trying to figure out how to tell this story in a way that is concise, but still covers the main events, and isn't just a boring recitation of political and military events. There are any number of angles to choose from, and I've been struggling to figure out which threads to pull on. So, just letting you know. But anyway, by 1967, if you were an Israeli leader trying to figure out which country you were most likely to go to war with, the smart money would be Syria. Syria and Israel have been engaged in low-level conflict for several years now, over Syria trying to stop the flow of water to the Jordan River, and Israel cultivating small bits of farmland that Syria claimed was theirs, over Fatah, the Palestinian terrorist group using Syria as a base to attack Israel, and Syria using the Golan Heights as their platform to constantly bombard Kibbutzim in the valley below, wounding and killing Israeli civilians. Israel's top spy, Eli Cohen, had been executed a year and a half earlier in 1965. In those secret transcripts from the security meetings before the Six Day War, Israel's leaders debated how to respond, especially to the constant artillery fire on the kibbutzim. Yitzhak Rabin, as the IDF's chief of staff, was aggravated that the situation in the north kept the army on a constant state of high alert, which wasn't sustainable in the long run some ministers advocated a more aggressive response like using the air force to attack syrian positions others worried that escalating israel's response would lead to an outright war and in the meantime in april of 1967 the soviet union began egging on the syrians by falsely claiming that israel was mobilizing its army to attack syria it wasn't true the soviets knew it but they doubled down on the claim It's a reminder, as I like to say, that you should not think that the Arabs and Israelis are always the key players in the Arab-Israeli conflict. Very often, we are talking about the meddling of other countries and even bigger forces, like, in this case, the Cold War. Because as the Arab countries started falling out with the United States and Europe in the late 1950s and early 1960s, the Soviets started raking in the benefits. The Middle East became fertile ground for Soviet influence. And in particular, the Soviets chose to go all in with Syria. From weapons and intelligence to Soviet bases and political and diplomatic support, Syria was the Soviet Union's favorite project. In this instance, think of it kind of like a twisted reverse psychology situation. If the Soviets claimed that Israel was about to attack Syria, but then Israel didn't, then the Soviet Union would get to claim to Syria, see? We stopped Israel. Damn, we must look good to you guys. Never mind the inconvenient fact that Israel wasn't planning a war with Syria in the first place. It's all about increasing Soviet influence in Syria. Fake news indeed. But of course, that's a dangerous game to play. The Syrians bought the lie as an excuse to keep up their attacks on Israel and support for terrorism, which just made Israel angrier. Israel's Security Council kept debating whether to escalate. But then one of the ministers expressed his confusion about why Syria was being so belligerent. Perhaps they are planning something with the Egyptians, he wondered. And it turns out he wasn't far off. Egypt and Israel were a bit like two boxers warily circling around each other in 1967. They may have wanted to come in swinging, but the ref was holding them back. Remember that they had fought a war on the Sinai Peninsula back in 1956, that triangular piece of desert that sits between Israel and Egypt and that has the Suez Canal. Israel won that war and took over the Sinai, but in exchange for giving the territory back to Egypt, the United Nations agreed to establish a peacekeeping force in both Sinai and the Gaza Strip to prevent the Egyptian military from getting close enough to threaten Israel. That's your ref. And the United States, Britain, and France all promised to support Israel if the Egyptians did. So if you're Israel in 1967, the reason why you are more worried about Syria than about Egypt is that you've got the United Nations standing literally between you and Egypt. Israel's not going to get attacked from there. They don't have to worry about it. But for the last 10 years, President Gamal abdel Nasser of Egypt had been nursing his humiliation of defeat at the hands of the Jewish state. That had weakened his stature amongst his fellow Arabs, along with other military adventures that had gone wrong, like a war in Yemen that had turned into Egypt's version of the Vietnam War. But a crisis with Israel, in which he would come out the winner, could really help turn things around. With the support of his fellow arab states particularly syria nazar in 1967 thought he could spark a conflict with israel that would erase the shame of his defeat in 1956. and here's where i point out that like books have been written about the situation and i'm just giving you the big picture overall here but we're setting up the geopolitical situation armed conflict with syria in the north and in the south egypt pacing like a big cat trying to find an opening to pounce. But the United Nations was standing in the way, though it wouldn't be for long. <laughs> On May 15 1967, during Israel's annual Independence Day celebration, Yitzhak Rabin received an urgent message during the parade. Egyptian military forces were pouring into the Sinai Peninsula, heading towards Israel. Rabin and Prime Minister Levi Eshkol were alarmed, but not super worried. Nazar was probably just making a big show to protest Israel's celebration. After all, with the UN there, he can't get too far. But as the day went on, President Nazar's rhetoric matched his military moves. Egyptian radio announced that Egypt was fully ready for war. And Nazar declared, Brothers, it is our duty to prepare for the final battle in Palestine. The situation was made worse by an inadvertent psychological mistake on Israel's side. They didn't have enough tanks at their military parade. See, Israel and Jordan had an agreement that neither side would allow too many military forces in and around Jerusalem, With trouble already brewing, Israel didn't want to provoke Jordan with a big show of force, so they kept most of the tanks back home in the garage. But Egypt said, You see, Israel doesn't have tanks at their parade because they're all up in the north waiting to attack Syria. And don't worry, Syria, we'll come to your rescue by destroying Israel. Egypt, as with the Soviets, knew this was baloney, but pushed it anyway, ratcheting up the tensions. By the end of the day, it was clear that big trouble was brewing, but Israel continued a policy of restraint, not wanting to provoke anyone. May 15th marked the beginning of what later came to be called Hamtanah, the waiting period, the three weeks between May 15th and the start of the Six-Day War, in which all of Israel held its collective breath in a moment of extreme tension and distress. And within a couple of days, things got worse. The next day, May 16th, Nazar ordered the United Nations peacekeeping force in Sinai and Gaza to leave. And incredibly, the United Nations agreed. Their excuse was that technically the UN needs a country's permission to stage peacekeeping troops in its territory. The UN had that from Egypt as part of the condition for getting the Sinai back after the war in 1956, but now Egypt was kicking them out. The UN didn't even put up an argument. They just picked up stakes and left. And that left the field wide open for Egypt, if it wanted to stage an attack on Israel's border that Israel was unprepared for. To try to get prepared and quickly, Israel began mobilizing the reserves. Now, you probably know that military service in Israel is compulsory. All young adults, more or less, men and women, serve in the army for a few years beginning at age 18. But Israelis continue to serve in the reserves for another 20 years or so after they leave the army, spending a week or two or a year back on base. So Israel's active duty military is actually quite small, just a few tens of thousands of troops at any given moment. In the event of a war, the reserves get called up, but there's a catch. The reserves are also the ordinary citizens, the shopkeepers and factory workers and teachers and bank tellers. If they're called up, Their jobs are left hanging, and so the system can only work at maximum capacity for a short while. Otherwise, as we know from the coronavirus pandemic, the economy collapses. Calling up the reserves then is major. And on May 20th, Israelis started dropping everything, and sometimes with only a few minutes' notice, grabbing their gear and heading out to their bases. Yet all that takes time, and Yitzhak Rabin knew that Israel had to postpone a war for as long as possible to give them time to prepare a defense against the Egyptians. In the meantime, the Israeli government still wasn't convinced that Egypt really wanted war, so they made what we might call a design parameter. If Egypt were to blockade Israeli shipping out of the port city of Eilat in the south, then Israel would know that Egypt meant war. Because cutting off shipping meant cutting off trade, which was the vital artery for the Israeli economy. As long as Egypt didn't do that, then there was still a chance on the Israeli perspective that this was all just a big show. On May 22nd, President Nazar blockaded a lot.. <laughs> There's a little waterway called the Straits of Tehran that leads from the Red Sea to the port of Eilat in Israel. From there, a ship can reach the Indian Ocean in Asia, or head up through the Suez Canal into the Mediterranean and Europe. Since the Sinai War in 1956, Israel had maintained that blocking the Straits of Tehran would be a justification for war, and now Nazar had done it. It was all but certain, it seemed, that war was upon them. Aggressively chained smoking his cigarettes, Yitzhak Rabin came to a couple conclusions. One was that Israel would most likely win the war. Even up against both Egypt and Syria, Israel had the military strength to win. But it would also be extremely costly, Rabin told Prime Minister Eshkol. There will be huge numbers of dead soldiers and civilians. Plus, Rabin added, we'd have to make sure that the war was very short. Otherwise, Israel would run out of weapons, and the reserves would crash the economy. What Israel really needed, said Rabin, was time. It was that night that Rabin had his nervous breakdown. He recovered by the next day, and the incident was blamed on too much caffeine. It all just added to the enormous tension of the Hamtana, the waiting period. And there was another problem. One of the lessons Israel learned after the war in 1956 was that it could win militarily but lose politically by being diplomatically isolated on the world stage. And that was especially true when it came to the United States, which was much more friendly towards Israel now, under President Johnson, than it had been in the 1950s under Eisenhower. Israel couldn't afford to alienate the United States by going against its interests in the Middle East. Again, we see the influence of the Cold War at play. Israel couldn't just attack Egypt and Syria without the backing of the United States and the other European powers, even if Egypt was provoking Israel. And so before war could happen, and to try to buy Yitzhak Rabin some time, Israel had to go the diplomatic route. And so on May 24th, Israel's foreign minister, Abba Ibn, headed off to Paris, London, and Washington to try to rally support in the last-ditch effort to stave off war. All right, so let me again do that which just kills me and condense books down into one paragraph. In essence, everyone told Abi Ibn the same thing. Don't shoot first. Everyone agreed that Egypt's actions justified war, but they all wanted to try to remove the blockade diplomatically first. Oh, and also, no one would sell Israel any weapons at this point. It would be limited to however many bullets they already had. President Johnson, who was the friendliest of the bunch, famously told Abe Ibn that Israel will not be alone unless it decides to go alone. And this was a huge repudiation of the promises those countries had made after the Sinai War in 1956 to guarantee Israel's security and support Israel's right to self-defense. But now, they were all going back on their promises. The United States, France, and Britain weren't completely leaving Israel out in the cold. They were very serious about preventing a war in the Middle East by forcing President Nazar in Egypt to back down. The United States had the idea of putting together an international armada of naval ships to sail through the Straits of Tehran, thereby forcing Egypt to release its blockade. If that worked, then war would be averted, so Israel should just hold off a minute to see what would happen. On May 26th, Nazar declared that Egypt's basic objective will be to destroy Israel. The head of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, the Palestinian terrorist group, he promised that in the event of war, no Jews will survive. On May 27th, Israel's leaders opted to wait a bit longer. And in the meantime, Prime Minister Eshkol would give a speech to the country. He would explain to Israelis why Israel was choosing to wait right now in order to give time for international diplomacy to work. But as Levi Eshkol took to the airwaves, the microphones picked up the prime minister fumbling with his papers and making a few mistakes while reading the speech that had just come hot off the presses, and which he hadn't practiced. It became known as the Stammering Speech, and it tanked Israelis' confidence in Eshkol and their government. At a time of maximum peril, Israel felt that they didn't have a good leader, Morale sank and the Arabs rejoiced. The Israelis, they gloated, are totally freaking out. So now with a military crisis, Israel also had a political one. As Hamtana, the waiting period, crossed into June of 1967, Levi Eshkol was under a great deal of pressure from the Israeli public, who demanded all hands on deck from Israel's leaders. A women's march descended on Tel Aviv, the wives of reserve officers, who agitated for clear leadership and seemed to have finally convinced Eshkol that change was necessary. For the first time in Israeli history, a unity government was formed, That is, a government made up of both the ruling party, in this case the left-wing, and the right-wing opposition. For almost 20 years, Ben-Gurion had kept Menachem Begin out in the cold. But now Begin and his right-wing party were brought into the government. It's like if President Obama had asked George Bush to move back into the White House to help him out. Times were so crazy that Begin even suggested that Ben-Gurion, his arch-nemesis, be made prime minister again, as he was the only one with the necessary experience to lead Israel through this. Ben-Gurion refused, but really appreciated the gesture. If I had known years ago that Begin felt this way about me, he said, Israeli history would have been a lot different. Man, those two. Perhaps most importantly, Moshe Dayan, one of our warrior gods and hero of the 1956 Sinai campaign, he was brought in to serve as defense minister. And one of the IDF's top generals, Chaim Herzog, took to the radio every day to assure nervous Israelis. If I had to choose today between flying an Egyptian bomber bound for Tel Aviv, or being in Tel Aviv, I would, out of a purely selfish desire for self-preservation, opt to be in Tel Aviv, he said. According to historian Martin Gilbert, Yitzhak Rabin later said how much those words comforted Israel. And by this point, Jordan had come into the game. As I've talked about before, King Hussein was a solid moderate when it came to Israel. He wasn't a Zionist, but he was definitely not looking to go to war with Israel and had a friendly relationship with the United States. He didn't get along with either Egypt or Syria, but now, on the verge of war, he was more or less forced to sign a defense pact with Egypt. If all the other Arab states were going to attack Israel, he really couldn't be the one guy left out. And also by now, in early June, the United States had come around that war was inevitable. The idea of sending a naval force to the Straits of Tehran never happened. And with that, the last excuse to demand that Israel wait for diplomacy to work. When the United States Secretary of State, Dean Rusk, was asked if the U.S. was trying to restrain Israel, he said, I don't think it is our business to restrain anybody. That was the green light that Israel was waiting for. If they went to war now, the United States wouldn't object. There was simply no other way to break the blockade and stop Egypt. And now, it was a question of the delicate balance between the economic and emotional destruction of continuing the waiting period versus, as the generals were predicting, the death and devastation that would come from finally pulling the trigger to go to war. For seven straight hours on Sunday, June 4, 1967, Moshe Dayan and Levi Eshkol laid out their war plan. At the end of the day israel's leadership voted unanimously to give the two men the green light there was one caveat the two of them would decide in secret the exact moment when the war would begin diane and eshkol retreated to a room by themselves and threw the dice Tanah, the three-week waiting period from mid-May to early June, wasn't just a time of diplomatic, political, and military maneuvering, but also a terrifying moment of self-reflection for all Israelis. They had come so far in the 19 years since Israel became independent. They had done what no Jews in 2,000 years, or really even ever, had managed, which was to build a modern democratic and Jewish state to serve as a home for Jewish civilization. So many successes and incredible accomplishments. times had also changed and there was a new generation of israelis who had different experiences ideas and values than their parents who had founded the state as certain war approached israelis wondered if this would be the end of the dream they had only just begun to build today's music was israeli rock bands from the 1960s a couple songs from the high windows and the army's nahal unit band Coming up on the final episode of season four here at Jew, I don't know. That's next time. Thanks for listening, everyone. L'hithraot. See you later.